Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ready. Play. afternoon, good evening, good morning, whatever time it is in the world, wherever you are tuning in from. Steve, I'm sure during your career, uh, you've probably tended to sort of focus on a North American audience. Um, I mean, when you're writing, do you think about who you're writing for? And and, and, and and I guess there's a US English style to what you've been writing for. But has has your job, I know we're going to talk about, we're going to no. talk about Alcaraz Djokovic sure. to come, but I just want to get into like, no. Something that may have changed in your job over the decades you've been involved. No, I feel like, I mean, I've been doing this for over 50 years. And I, I, I my first full-time job after having done a bunch of other things leading up to it was a work at World Tennis Magazine, which was kind of the Bible of the sport, an American magazine starting in 74. No, I've always felt that I was writing for a highly educated audience, for diehard tennis people, not necess- not really the general sports fan. Although you try not to overplay your hand, so to speak. And, and uh, 
Yeah, that's how I've looked at it. I don't think my outlook has really, it, my outlook has remained the same essentially ever since. Steve, what are you what are you doing in the in the build up to a, a big match such as a Wimbledon final? I mean, uh, you know, you'll, you'll be very very familiar with both players, but are, are you fairly relaxed? Are you just you know chilling and talking to people, and then you take your seat, you get your pen and paper out? How how does the sort of day and more also specifically, what are you doing throughout the match? Are you a constant note taker, or are you trying to absorb as much as you can, or a bit of both? I chart the whole match. Uh, that's just how I like to do it, and, uh, and uh, which is odd in a sense because I have a kind of a photographic memory. So a lot of this I would have absorbed in my mind anyway, but I like to have it as a reference point for after the match when I'm writing. What am I doing leading up to it? I, I, you know, I, it's, it hasn't changed that much through the years. I'll get out to the grounds a couple of hours earlier and just I'm, I'm doing things in preparation for the match and just enjoying the countdown. And then I try to get into the center court. Oh, at least 10 minutes before the match. I don't want to miss the players walking out onto the court and the drama that there's nothing like that moment in the entire tennis year. It's, it's pretty dramatic and exhilarating at any of the majors, but somehow that walkout of the two players onto the center court for a Wimbledon final is unlike anything else in tennis. And at the end of the match, how has it changed over those 50 years? Did you, I, I know in other sports, you know, reporters would file down their, down the phone. I don't know if that was the same with you in tennis. And then, uh, yeah, how's it changed over the years? That's interesting. Yeah, when I was breaking in, a lot of the British guys were still doing that. Uh, but by the time, but I never did because I was working for a magazine. I, en- I admired and envied them what they were able to do. Uh, sometimes just literally dictating off the top of their head into that phone. Uh, that changed gradually, and I'm fortunate in that I've always I, I haven't been a newspaper correspondent. I've written mainly for magazines and web websites, so that usually I have a time. For instance, after the Wimbledon final, I might start writing it on site, leave, go back to the hotel, write some more, and maybe if I'm fortunate, have the next early the next morning at the airport before flying back to New York. I'm in the the, the American Airlines lounge completing the piece and sending it out. So I, I like to be able to think about it in different stages like that. Some, there are other times through the years that I had to finish that article off on site a couple of hours after the match. That was just because of the deadline. So it has varied. But recently, I've been able to have that little extra time so that if I, I can get it, if I can get the piece out Monday morning to the site by, say, 9 a.m., I'm good. I have unilaterally made this year's Wimbledon final the match of the year. I, I think it's a slightly contentious one, Steve, because there, there is one other significant candidate. I personally put it at the top because of the magnitude of the occasion, because of of, of what occurred, and, and also maybe also who won in the end uh, makes a slight difference for me. But what about you? Do you would you put it at the top, or would you maybe err to their clash in Cincinnati? I'm very torn because I think in many ways Cincinnati surpassed Wimbledon for level of play, especially especially in that final set. The yeah. final set surpassed anything I saw at Wimbledon. But you make a, a very valid point because Wimbledon is the preeminent tournament in tennis. There's nothing more important. These are the two best players in the world squaring off 
in the in what is the most important match of the year. So for the mat that match to be high quality and go five sets, I've written books. I've written a couple of books. One was the greatest tennis matches of the 20th century, and followed it up uh, with the greatest tennis matches of all time before writing a, a bio on Pete Sampras. But in the greatest tennis matches of all time, there are a lot of Wimbledon, U.S. Open, French Open finals, because I I, I put heavy stock on the immensity of the occasion. So your point is well taken. But yeah. it was, it, I don't I have rarely seen a match outside of the slams that could match Djokovic Alcaraz in, uh, in Cincinnati. And I would have to say that it was maybe the pivotal match of the year because from there Djokovic, I mean he takes that crown, he wins the US Open, he takes some time off, he wins the Paris Indoor Bercy crown and he wins the year end championships finally lost in the Davis Cup, but by then he had accomplished so much and had secured his eighth year year and number one ranking. So you you look back and say, suppose he had lost that day narrowly to Alcaraz in Cincinnati. How would that have affected his morale? And then in turn, Alcaraz did not win a tournament after Wimbledon himself. So right. you have to say Cincinnati had an impact that was greater in some ways than Wimbledon, but Wimbledon is Wimbledon. And it's just far and away the most important tournament in tennis. And as I, as I mentioned, it's the two best players going five sets. You also have to consider that Djokovic came in with a 37 and 10 record in five set matches. Mm -hmm. And so he'd won over 75% of his matches across his career that had gone the, the distance, had gone the five sets. So hard to beat in five. And that Carlos had lost to Novak in the semifinals at Roland Garros, the yeah. penultimate round. They had played two terrific sets. First went one to Djokovic 6-3, then 7-5 for Alcaraz in the second, and then the cramping came in. And Alcaraz was pretty crippled the rest of the way and honorable to finish the match, but he was, he was really handicapped because of the cramping was all over his body. So yeah, for then for him to come from that and then beat Djokovic in five sets in a match that looked like it was getting away from him when they went into the fifth set uh, was remarkable. So I, I think your point is well taken. And I, you know, in terms of significance and, and, and long term importance of a match, long term, no doubt Alcaraz Djokovic, because it, it was Alcaraz winning his first Wimbledon over the man who was looking for his fifth title in a row on the sacred grounds of the All England Club. And and uh, Carlos now had a second major and it was more impressive in its way than winning the US Open the previous year because he was going through Djokovic. So all of those factors are, are very important. Both players had had kind of similar runs, dropping a, a set or two here and there. I remember Djokovic uh, coming through her catch over a sort of a two-day period. Rublev, uh, Djokovic also dropped a set too as well. Um, and then on the other side with Alcaraz, I, I know he dropped sets to, to Jarry and, and Berrettini. But, you know, they both arrived in the final where we, we didn't really think about physical issues because of some epic five setters that they'd had en route. Um, interestingly, I spoke to Michael Stich about three weeks or, or about a week before the tournament. So it was after the French Open and before Wimbledon. And he, he did tip Alcaraz. And I picked Carlos Alcaraz as the winner this year. Um, just because he won just his first title on grass, I think he is extremely, um, in a way, extremely able to adapt to situations and to challenges not just because he has the game, just because he is 
he's loving it. You know, he loves it to, to challenge himself. And um, I think he has learned a lot of players. When you look back at the French Open semifinals against Novak, his breakdown, his physical and mental breakdown, with a lot of players, you would say like, well, they would struggle with that for the next weeks and months to come. I think with Alcaraz, he has learned a huge lesson from that match. And it will never happen again to him. I think it made him even stronger and a better player. And that's why I really feel like he believes he can Wimbledon. And he wants to prove to the world that that was a one-off and it's not going to happen again. And I think if you would look at it and he would be honest, maybe he would say like, I want to play the final against Novak and I want to prove to the people that's not going to happen again and I'm able to win this. So my pick really is Carlos Alcaraz. And I, I sort of went out on a limb and tipped Alcaraz as well. I was, I was filled with a lot of confidence from his Queen's run. Um, and I, I don't know. Maybe there was just some other gut feeling that I had for Carlos. Well, However, well, well done on your part. Let me just contrast that by saying I was not that impressed with his Queen's call. I was impressed that he won it. He could have easily lost his first match. He got better and better. And very good against Corda and Di Minore. and He definitely improved a lot. And the fact that he could escape uh, uh, narrowly uh, losing early and then go all the way. And he seemed to be adapting. But I, I didn't see enough there to, to make me believe that he would be the favorite at Wimbledon or that I would pick him. On the other hand, you could see that that gave him a certain security on the surface that he never had before. So it actually was very in, in a very valuable week for Alcaraz that he went to Queens and that he got it done and that he put the disappointment of Roland Garros behind him and came into Wimbledon in the right frame of mind. But I, I didn't see how coming into the tournament you could pick anyone other than Djokovic. That was my point of view. So I tip my hat to you if that was your hunch. It was a hunch as well. And, and, and um, yeah, and I, and I say Michael had the same, same view. Um, I, I agree with you that, that the, the, there was some hair. I think in the first round he saved a match point before going through in Queens. But yep. I, I, I started to get more confident in, in the way that he was learning so quickly and that the movement was, was, was obviously not going to be at Novak's level. But I will say this, though, Steve. On the day of the final, I had some last-minute jitters about that prediction. <laughs> and, and especially so. during the first set. Yes, yeah. No, the first set. Well, yeah, let's talk about the first set. It was a very interesting set, John, in the sense that Novak was immediately down break point for a service game. And he yeah. he got out of it with 127 mile an hour. And service went into the back end clutch moment, held after a couple of deuces. So that first set could have been different. I'm not going to say very different because the way Novak returns, you can't say that going down one early break was in a cost of a set. But it would have given... Carlos would have had his bearings. Instead, the next thing you knew, Djokovic was up five love and he won the set 6-1 in 35 minutes. And he... Game and first set, Djokovic. He, he, was, he was dialed in, if I can borrow a cliche expression, in the sense that he was really bearing down hard not missing much, serving beautifully, uh, pinpoint accuracy. And you could see that Carlos, he was, to me, he was over-anxious. He was over-hitting. Missed a lot of forehand returns and just forehand rally shots as well by just trying to sort of break, knock the cover off the ball. He was, he was a little too determined, I think, to, 
to uh, showcase his power. And so, and you felt like it, it had gotten to him a bit being first Wimbledon final, understandable that he, he was too aware of, of the immensity of the occasion. And so the combination of Djokovic using his experience in playing rock solid tennis and, and Carlos obviously apprehensive, it, 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 yeah, it, it certainly would have made any Alcaraz prognosticators uh, for victory on his side worried. So I can see why you, you would have been concerned. But then, of course, we had that whale of a second set. To me, the second set was the key to the match, but also was just the best played set of the five. Uh, do you agree with that? Um, I, I just want to say something quickly on the first set before I get to the second set. I think you're probably right. In terms of start to finish of each set, it's the second set where both are at or close to their best. Whereas Jok uh, sorry, Djokovic yeah, in the third set would have had various dips, particularly after he goes a double breakdown. Um, Alcaraz in the fourth, and we've already touched on the first. But one thing I want to say about the first as well is there was a, a couple of similarities with the Sinner semi-final because Sinner in the first game of the semi-final had a break point as well. Yes, on the he note. did. He did. He did. Absolutely. And it was like it was but, kind of like ah, oh, you didn't take it, and then Novak punished him heavily, yeah. and, and exactly the same with Carlos. Yeah, there were some similarities, and then uh, Novak. Though that first set was, you know. It, Yes, it, that could have changed the complexion. That could have relaxed Sinner as well. I agree with that. But in the case in the case of Sinner, I think relative to Carlos, I'd say Sinner played a better, uh, certainly played a better first set than Carlos did, and Definitely. and didn't have as much to worry about when it was over. But the second set was interesting because, as you know, you know Carlos had the break. He was up to love Novak yeah. break right back, which was critical. And then that's where they both really had found their range. I mean, Novak remained at the left, pretty much at the level he'd been across the first set and Carlos dug in and he served much better and found his range off the forehand, much better ball control. And they held all the way into that tie break. Mm -hmm. And, and you, and it was obvious how, how critical that outcome of that second set tie break was going to be. And here's Novak who at that stage had won 21 out of 20, I think 21 and four in tie breaks during the year. And he'd only lost one at the majors in Australia. And he'd, he'd won six breakers at Wimbledon. He'd won, he'd won six in Paris without making an unforced error in 55 points. I mean, so obviously he was the clear favorite to win that breaker. And if he wins the breaker, he's almost surely going to win the match. Yeah. And I, I thought it was a fascinating tiebreak in the sense that Djokovic had the immediate cushion, John, of the three-love lead. Yeah, yeah. And then Carlos, to his credit, you know, that's where it could get away from you in a hurry. You make one error on the next two points, and, and if Djokovic is up double mini-break, it's over. But Carlos won those two points on his serve, and then surprisingly, Novak missed that drop shot. Uh, mm -hmm. It was not necessarily the best time to try the back-end drop, and he, he missed it, and it's three-all, and... And it's a different kind of tie break from there, but they both were they both were winning their service points confidently from there to the point where Djokovic got that set point. To this day, I remain kind of astonished about what happened on because he hit a good. It, it's five six. It's set point. Carla, Carla uh, Novak's return is nice and deep. Alcaraz made a very good deep backhand himself. Djokovic commented on that after the match that it had good length, as he put it. But it wasn't hit super hard. I mean, it's it's still a neutral rally at that point, and and you just don't expect Djokovic. That's when he's going to be in the so-called lockdown mode, mood and mode. And somehow he, he in I 
I never would, I would love to ask him. The one thing I would love to ask him about that point was, was he deliberately trying to go low and short? Or okay. did he just get tight and hit that ball into the net tape cross court? Because mm -hmm. again, he's not even going over the higher part of the net, he's going cross court. Mm -hmm. And I, I, as I've reviewed it in my mind and looked at it a few times on tape, I've often thought, I think he may have been trying to go, because sometimes they will do that. Rather than go for depth, he'd just gone, hit a deep ball. And now Carlos has come back and answered that depth with good depth of his own. So it was Novak, I had the feeling he did want to go low and short because that can sometimes provoke an error to get the guy. It, Carlos has got to move up into the court and dig out a low ball and, and it might coax him into an error. I would love someday to ask Djokovic that question. But whatever the reason, he didn't measure it right. He missed a shot that that he'd make, I believe, 99 out of 100 times. He'd keep in the court. And obviously that was that was a devastating blow to him and a, and a, and a tremendous sense of relief and having survived a dangerous moment from Carlos because, he, you know, he knows if he's down two sets, the trouble he's in. Equally surprising was when they changed ends of the court, John, and Novak then missed a backhand down the line that not even close, really. And he kind of looked up at his camp as if to say, what in the world is going on here? How could I follow up on my missed backhand on set point and do this? And then he he did try that serve and volley. It was not a bad serve wide to the backhand. Carlos just read it. He read it all the way, and Novak never could, wasn't even close to being able to make a volley. It was an outright winner down the line from Alcaraz off the backhand on the return. So the way that set shifted over the course of the tiebreak, but particularly over those last three points, I mean, obviously it just changed the complexion of the match because I think Djokovic would have been brimming with confidence and Carlos would have been wondering, you know, how do I, how, how can I possibly win this match on two sets down against him? It was shocking in the sense that Djokovic is such a, and he has been the quintessential clutch performer in tennis over the last 12 years. And very rarely do you see him not exploit an opportunity like that. It did happen at the end of the year, a bit surprising in that Davis Cup match with, with Sinner because he had triple match point, but that's all on Sinner's serve. It's triple match yeah. point. And Novak did miss a slice back in on the first match point and he, and then Sinner hits a great serve, and then he comes into the net, Sinner, and puts away a forehand volley. Okay. That can happen. That's a little different when the other guy's got, the other guy is serving. But but to be in a tie break and to have made the return and then not, not take advantage of a pretty good return and make sure not to miss in that rally, uh, that that was uh, – that, that, that was, I remember how shocked I was at the time when they went to their chairs and the gym and Alcaraz is great. In, is putting his hands to his ears to the crowd in, in the joke of its gesture as if to say, how about some applause for me? And he had every right to be proud to have come out of that crisis the way he did and take that set away from Djokovic, you know, at, at the tail end of that tiebreak and make it one set all. And suddenly it's a brand new match. So I, I thought that was interesting. And, 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 and obviously the third set, so much was made. I, I, I'd like to get your views on this, John, because you've obviously thought a lot about it. But mm -hmm. third set, obviously, I felt like there was a there was a, a definitely a decline in Novak's morale and in and his and physically he looked a little bit sluggish in going down three one three one. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I think, Steve, in that, in that third set, we had a, a kind of a bit like the 2019 final with Novak where... You know, once he goes down the double break, he kind of thinks, OK, this set is gone and then just sort of wait that one out. If you like, like he did in, in 2019, I think at least in one of those sets, he lost to Roger where yeah, he, yeah, oh, no. like he checked out. Yeah, oh, no, you're right. Second set. Four set, he managed to get a break back. He went down a couple of breaks, got one back, which actually helped going to the fifth. But you're right. No, the second set, it was like, OK, his mind quickly moved on to the third. I think you may be right, but the point I want to make before that, John, is just that he goes down 3-1, and then they had that marathon 27-minute game, 13 deuces, and Novak had so many opportunities to hold on. And no doubt, once he lost that game, your point is proven because uh, he, he knew when he was down two breaks. But, the, but everybody raved about that game, and it was a phenomenal game, no doubt, from both players and that, all those deuces and and the and and some spectacular points, also some bad misses from Djokovic too, who just couldn't close out the game. And yes, from that point, I think he said, "No, this set's over. I got. I'm thinking about the fourth. And I agree. But I I felt like everybody. It, it, it was a showcase game. It was it was statistically it was interesting to look at that game and see how much time it consumed. Almost half an hour for the one game, but. Djokovic, I don't think, was likely to win the set, frankly, even if he'd held. I don't know if that was going to be enough to get him back in the way he was playing in that set. Four set was a different story, but I felt in the third he was still internally, I would say internally maybe spinning a bit as anybody would be, kind of probably blaming himself for not being up two sets and annoyed with himself and a little depressed. Anybody would be, even someone as strong-minded and willful as Novak Djokovic. I was worried for, um, actually, Carla. So I, I kind of have a slightly different take, but, you know, it all depends on where you're coming from, what you're thinking at the time. Yeah, I, was, I was worried that if Carlos doesn't break him in that 27-minute game, I was thinking this could collapse now because it, it although it was just a Novak hold or an attempt at a hold, it felt bigger with every single juice and every break point that was missed. I mean, I think in the whole set, most of them would have came in that one game. He had 11 break point opportunities and, and took three of them, Carlos, I think, in the set. Um, but it, with every break point opportunity that slipped away, it was like, it almost felt like even a Novak hold would be like a Novak break. That's what it was starting to feel like. But you still think that even if Novak had held in that game, Carlos would have been, wouldn't have been able to get over the line. I think very likely it would have given Novak some hope. It would have been a boost, obviously, to win that marathon game and feel, OK, I'm still in the one breakdown. I can get back into this. But I didn't like the way he was playing and in that set. And I did feel that Alcaraz had had altered his strategy by then. And, and instead of going for so many huge returns that were non-percentage, he was getting a lot of more balls back into play. He was more conservative. And he was giving Novak a chance to miss, which normally is a strategy that's going to backfire. But in this instance, given what had just transpired in the second, we'll never know. And I frankly think they're probably, in fairness to you, John, there are more, more people might agree with you 
on what the impact would have been had Novak held. I, watching it at the time and seeing it on tape since, I, I don't feel that way. I feel that, I mean, he would have fought on. He would have, he would have been more optimistic just being a breakdown, but he still wasn't liking where he was. Uh, and he wasn't in the mood that he was in the fourth set when he, when he lifted his game again. But I, 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 I guess what I'm saying, too, is I feel like, yes, it was a great it was a great game within the context of the match. And and the numbers are astounding that all to have 13 deuces, to have 27 minutes, to have that many missed Djokovic opportunities. But I felt like was it necessarily the best tennis of the match? No, but it was a it was it was a very strong stand from Alcaraz to not let go, to not let Novak have that hold to stay in there because he knew that that would seal the set for him. So I, I, I give Alcaraz a tremendous amount of credit for finally getting the break. There's a couple of other little points that I want to highlight at this moment as well. Is I think um, uh, Alcaraz's serving uh, was pretty impressive throughout the tournament, especially against Medvedev in the semifinal. But something as well that I really like, a feature of his game, uh, at Wimbledon and, and to a lesser extent Roland Garros as well was the the attacking second serve return. I mean, it's how he sealed that second set. I've got so many images in my mind, Steve, of, of Carlos just jumping into a second serve return. Yeah. Uh, I saw Runa do it to a lesser, lesser effect, but I also enjoyed the way he would attack second serves at various points this season. And even on the, on the quick grass of of Wimbledon, perhaps, of course, in the second week, it is a little slower and maybe a little bit more attackable. Um, but I, that was a real enjoying feature that I probably didn't see quite as effective in the in the latter stages of the season from Carlos. Yeah, good, e- excellent point. I, I couldn't agree more with that. I just and 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 it's 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 very true. He was very aggressive and quite accurate with the the second serve returning and great depth. And he really made joke made Novak know that that second serve better come in there with with some good placement and good depth, or it was going to be punished. Yeah. And that- and that helped him considerably, but when I was re- what I was referencing earlier, when it came to missed return, it's it, I didn't like the way he was going after so many first serve returns at certain stage of the match. Those, and that's what I thought he changed in the third is that he tried to start blocking first serve returns back, which was so wise, got him into the points, gave himself a chance as opposed to earlier, especially in the first, where it felt like he was going for every forehand first serve return and not making nearly an, uh, enough of them. But your point about the second serve returns is right. Uh, they, they, they were astounding at times, uh, 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 better than maybe anything he'd produced the whole tournament, but certainly yeah. as good as anything he had done. The, the drop shot, which is something that Carlos has almost owned at various points in his already brief career, that wasn't quite so prevalent at Wimbledon. I think, I think at Wimbledon... If you if you execute it amazingly and things are working out because you've got Medvedev who's so far away from the from the baseline he's almost in Birmingham um, <laughs> that <laughs> that it it can work but actually the problem with, with that I would say with with actually do, pulling off the drop shot on grass is you don't get that time that you get on clay to do it you know you don't you can't just wheel up an imaginary unbelievable forehand before quickly changing direction because the ball is coming at you too quickly but we did see a did see one or two occasions particularly as well in that second set tiebreak. Uh, from uh, from Carlos, where a lovely drop shot uh, helps him there. Uh, the third set is is largely our memories, in particular, are focused on that that one game, uh, the twenty seven minute game you highlight. 
the fourth set, Steve, is is maybe the one that I find most difficult to remember. I, I People might focus on the first set because it didn't really have a, a huge bearing on, or maybe it helped Carlos, I don't know. But, but I remember quite well the first set, the second set, the third set, and the fifth set, of course. But it's actually the fourth set that kind of um, is a bit hazy for me. Yeah, I, I, I can understand that. Uh, well, here, here's here's my memory is that Djokovic is down a couple of break points. He could have gone down a break early, could have been down too low. And he dug in hard there. He, you know, he he knew that the last thing he could afford at this stage being now down two sets to one is to get down an early break. And when he came so out of that game. Didn't, didn't he take, sorry to, sorry to interrupt, didn't he take a lengthy break between the, the third and fourth set as well? He did. Yeah, he took the bathroom break and came back. But here he was in immediate danger of going down a break. He got out of it got the break himself. And then the most surprising part of that set, John, was the last game. Carlos serves a couple of double faults. Uh, and and so that then enables Novak to start serving the fifth set. That was surprising. You felt like that's – Carlos is such a mature player in that respect that he would want to make him serve it out and at least be able to start serving himself in the fifth set. But he deprived himself of the opportunity. That was basically a giveaway game. A couple of good returns from Novak, but two doubles from Carlos. And that's why you're forgetting it. I can understand, yeah. you know, because you would predict it Alcaraz and you probably know, but I'm not, I don't mean from that standpoint. I, in some ways, it maybe was the least memorable, but it was a resurgence from Djokovic, to be sure, once yeah. he got out of the early jam. And I felt like his movement got a bit better and he started to uh, dictate more of the points for the baseline and everything sort of came around. He had some, some comfortable holes. And the next thing you know, he's a six, three victor on the, on the strength of two breaks, not one and starting to serve in the fifth. And once again, we come to a new crisis point. If you, if you want to lead us into it. Yeah, I can definitely lead us into it. And I think I know exactly the point you're talking about when you were talking about that second set tie break and, 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 and just one or two points you know, that could potentially have changed history, arguably. There's definitely uh, one point in, in a game coming up shortly that we're going to focus on. Uh, but just before we get there, I, just, I, do, I do now remember that, that double fault and the, the gifting of the, of the set in a way and not making Novak serve it out. And, and as you say, possibly even more significantly, not having to serve first or not serving first in the fifth set. And, and if I had jitters at various points in the first set about my pre-tournament prediction... Well, when he gave that game away in the manner he did, I just thought fifth set Novak hasn't lost on this particular court for 10 years since losing right. to Murray in 2013. Everything else as well was, was pointing really towards a Novak win. Game and um, how Carlos served in that fifth set, I will never know. I will never know how he kept it together because he was fairly comfortable on serve throughout. He was getting so many first serves in. But that, of course, comes largely because that pressure, anyway, largely comes because he does get the break. But the manner in which he gets the break is is it also another thing that elevates this match. Because I think the point that you're probably referring to is there's a ball that flies up, and I'd love to get your take on it. Because actually, this ball, I've watched this point uh, a dozen or so or more times, and I've, I've frozen it as well, as Novak has a decision to make. And he's got, I think, three decisions. He can either go for a very awkward smash, and we also know about Novak's reputation with smashes. He does have the option of letting it bounce 
And I think it's 50-50. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've seen the point many times since, but it's 50-50 in terms of it potentially landing out. And, of course, if it well, lands wait, out... Wait, wait, wait a minute. You mean... I'm not sure what you mean by that. Okay. So he it's the point when, when he's got... When he goes for the no, swing know, volley know, in the end. The point. I know the point you're talking because this is break point for two love in the fifth. It's a huge point. Yep. No, what I mean is... What do you mean it's 50-50 if he let it bounce, whether he makes it? No, no, whether the ball lands out. So he's got he's oh, got three oh, whether options. Carlos is, whether Carlos's lob land. Yeah, oh, I think it might. Yeah, it yeah. might have landed out. It might have landed. And I'm not. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating because I've watched it. When I, I think when I saw it live, I thought it was going to land out. But then, but then I've seen it again since, and it might even be sixty forty. But there's a chance. So even if it's sixty forty. The maths would suggest probably go for that because you've got a very difficult smash, a very difficult swing volley. You might win the point and you're in charge of the point, by the way. So, of course, you would look at seeding that advantage potentially by letting it bounce. But you've also got a, uh, you know, if it bounces and lands in, you've now got an equally difficult-ish shot because Carlos can probably compose himself whereas he wouldn't have that time to compose himself uh, if you do a smash or, or a swing volley. But anyway, so I think that probably he he should have let it bounce and then maybe still be in charge of the point from that moment onwards. But of course, it's very easy to say with, with hindsight and I've got, I've got hours and weeks and months to think about this, but. Um, and yeah. you just, and you, you and I, and mainly you and, and, and well described, uh, think of the time you took just to say that. And he has, <laughs> he has that split second decision while the ball's in the air. You're right. I have looked at the tape. I agree with you. It's possible. I, in my view, the when I look at it, I think there's maybe a thirty percent chance the ball would go out. Okay. But you know that I, that's just my judgment. I could be off on that. Here's what I think. You you got to one of the key elements early. The overhead. It's the least comfortable shot he's got. I've seen him make some great overheads in his career, but obviously, there's many times he gets tight and he doesn't really. He, he doesn't really go for it, and, yeah. and the, he slows the swing down, and he, he's way too conscious. So I can see, I, and, I can, and I know some of my friends believe, oh, no, he had to go for the overhead. I didn't have a big problem with him going for the swing volley. What surprised me was that he went, he got, he kind of outsmarted himself by going back down the line. I wouldn't have been as fearful as he was of Carlos's speed, and Carlos's speed is to be respected. So I don't mean it that way, but if you hit, the swing volley well across court. Even Carlos is going to have trouble tracking it down, you know, and you get a good angle on it, and it's probably a winner. And the point that I think of often, and you ought to look at this, you might enjoy watching it again. If you go back to match point against Sitsipas in the 2021 French Open, he had a, he had a, it, he, it was another lob almost in the same place. Mm -hmm. That and where he had to decide, am I hitting an overhead? And he said no. And he hit it as a drive volley. It was a, a winner cross court. Sissabas mm -hmm. uh, had no play. Now Carlos is faster. I get it, but I I just wish if I I wish that he would have just gone cross court and not been as fearful of that because it's harder to make that going back down the line. You don't have near you, you don't have nearly the amount of court to hit into. It's a much more difficult shot but if he wins that point as he should have he played it perfectly he'd open up the court he'd come in carlos did only thing he could do which was to toss that ball up in the air and and novak gets the break i'm pretty convinced he would have won so 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 we had those two crisis moments for him the set point and the tie break in the second set which we discussed earlier and now this one and wouldn't you know it 
And again, it's to Alcaraz's credit, knowing that Djokovic was probably going to still be thinking about that missed opportunity as anybody would, because instead of being two love, it's one all now, is in the following game, Carlos gets the break. He played a good game. The little tight point, I thought, from Novak at 30 all, and then a, a good pass, from, a, a great shot from Carlos to get to seal the break. And that's when Novak went to the changer and kind of smacked his racket against the net post because I think in his mind, he's thinking, I should be up three love and I'm down to a break. I should be up a break, three love and, and, and on my way. And instead, I'm down a break. And, and, and of course, there's where we get to your earlier point. From that moment on is when Carlos served extraordinarily well be a better than I think even he could have believed. He had three game close closing aces, by the way, including one on a second serve. Okay. He he had a 1530 hold and then serving for the match, he he was at 30 all. Novak was returning well in that game and he had a great serve at 30 all, followed with another terrific serve on match point that trap Novak was trapped. He got it back but Carlos hit a forehand that had Novak off balance on his forehand side and it's over. So Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It, there's no doubt in my mind the serve won Carlos the match in the fifth set because after that one break point opportunity for Novak, the best he could do was get to 15-30 on Carlos' serve and then 30 all in the last game. So it was, I don't think I've ever seen him serve a set, particularly a set of that importance, any any better. Or maybe I've never seen him serve that well, period, or, over the course of of a critical set as he did there because Novak was fighting hard. I think he still believed he could pull it out. And, and you could tell he did because in the presentation ceremony, he alluded to the last game to Carlos. I, you know, I made you serve it out and I, and I got a lot of returns back and you could tell he felt like, look, I gave you a test and you passed it yeah. and all power to you, all power to you. And so I, I, yeah, I mean, I, it it was, it was a pretty phenomenal tennis match, no doubt about it. And I, I hope we're going to get more from them in the future. We certainly got a gem in Cincinnati. We didn't get it in the year-end championships, and Novak completely outclassed him indoors. But that's at the end of the year when he's playing really well and, and Carlos has come off this, what for him was a slump post-Wimbledon. And uh, that's why, again, just to allude one more time to Cincinnati, John, I honestly think Cincinnati in some ways cost him the U.S. Open. Okay. And I wonder whether he would have won the Medvedev match had he been in it, had things, you know, had he come in with a big win over Novak in Cincinnati, had he squeezed out a triumph there. We'll never know. But then, then I think things spiral a bit in the fall, and I think he was playing hurt. He had a couple of injuries that he was nursing, and maybe came back a little too soon, and it wasn't it wasn't quite the same Carlos over the second half. Not that I think he's going to collapse by any means and not that we're not going to see a ton more majors. And in my view, at least 
at least one more mate. He'll get he'll get one in the coming year for sure. He'll he'll get right back to the thick of things. But you know, it's just interesting to look back on Wimbledon and what that meant to him, and then to look at Cincinnati and how that seemed like a devastatingly potent blow to him and and an enormous lift for Djokovic that carried him through the rest of the season. There were there were five or six different sort of theories swirling around Carlos in that second half of the season, and and certainly one of them is the 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 psychological impact that that loss in the Cincinnati final. We saw him, I think, punching. Uh, I think when he yeah. loses that second set, I think I see him punching something uh, near his chair, and and I know that, that that really did annoy him that that losing that match in the manner it was. It's actually one of the other reasons, yeah. by the way. Just a quick interjection there by May. Yeah, he was upset because he had the break in the second set. That was yeah. when Novak was struggling in the heat. Impossible yeah. heat of Cincinnati. So Carlos had 4-2. And so he was probably was upset that he didn't get a couple more holes and win the set. And then in, in turn, Novak saves a match point, played it masterfully, and you know, with a good serve that set up a deep forehand that got him out of match point in the tiebreak. So I just, I just, I just put also. I know we we touched on why I put Wimbledon ahead. There's also uh, that that match in Cincinnati could very. I mean, you could say the same about the Wimbledon final, but because it's five sets, it's a bit more difficult. Uh, but that Cincinnati match could have, and perhaps from Carlos' point of view, should have been a a fairly rudimentary match. And it was because Carlos didn't sort of get over the line in the second set, and then it explodes, of course. But it was very close to being a nondescript occasion. That's this. Yeah, it was. It was it was odd because Djokovic was up four two in the first before the heat started getting to him. And he was out playing him up to four two. And then Carlos turns that set around and goes up the break in the second. And then Djokovic, Djokovic gets that big. And then the tie break was up for grabs and Novak wins it from match point down. But then of course the whole heart of that match was what they both showed us in the third. Novak in, on his way to the five three lead. Carlos saving the two match points and then following it by saving two more match points in the next game, following it by saving four break points, I believe, at five all. And, not, and then Novak to respond the way he did from five, six, love 15 to pull that out, mm. that holdout, and then win the tie break seven points to four, which was locked at four points all as well. So it was it, the third set was astonishing, no doubt about it. And again, it, to Carlos's credit, I you're being critical of him as you should for the second set, but the way that the resilience that he showed in the third, he could so easily have lost at six, three in the third too. So you had a situation where he could have won comfortably where he, where he could have lost six, three in the third. And we would have said, Oh, it was a terrific match to where it became a, an epic because of going down, going nearly four hours, three hours, 49 minutes and uh, a tiebreaker in the final set. What more could you ask for? I will have a very close eye on what Carlos's team decide to do in the build-up to the 2024 U.S. Open. And the reason I say that is immediately after the U.S. Open, his team announced that he would not be playing any warm-up events before Australia. I think there's some exhibitions planned. I think there's one against Novak, for example, in a couple of weeks from now. But um, I thought that's interesting. They've immediately come out and they've said this. And I just wonder if they, they might try and do what Novak does, which is just play Cincinnati. I wonder if they will skip Canada next year. I could be, this is pure speculation. I have no evidence to back this up other than just 
curiosity. I know they are a bit more, not not ambitious, but they do play around with the calendar a bit more than than other teams will. You know, Stefanos Tsitsipas will play every single tournament that's going, if you like. Whereas, whereas he's been known to skip Rome just before the French Open because they think it's the wise thing to do. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see more players with so much tennis nowadays and so much intensity as well. And if you want to do the Asian swing and blah, 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 then then you've got to pace yourself. And we've even if you're and it doesn't matter if you're 36 or 21, I, I, I think we might see we might see a slightly more cautious approach to the US Open and not play, you know, Canada as well. Yeah, it's entirely possible. You, you make a good point. And I, I feel like um, the danger, I mean, for instance, let's just say that Novak, he, he hasn't played since Wimbledon. So the matches are important to him in Cincinnati. I think going in there that his, he was hoping to at least get to the quarters, sure. get some matches in. And then it became a bonus to be in a position to win the tournament. But let's just say that Carlos did what you think he might be planning to do. And he went to Cincinnati next year and he got picked off early. Then he might come into the open. Sure. Not, not, I don't mean the confidence blow. I just think more the match play. Feeling that's, like the he, risk. that's the risk you take. I get it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're doing that in Australia. That's the risk they're taking. Yeah. They, they yeah. just hope he gets to the fourth round. Yeah, that's true. Although everybody in Australia, they're on a similar boat in the sense true. that they've had their off season and maybe somebody, true. some play a tournament or some play a team competition and others don't play at all. But you could well be right. I'm sure they're analyzing it. But I think that the funny thing is, had he just lost to, jo well, had he not he, played? He, no he Cincinnati, I thought. I thought he peaked in, in his in his North American season, if you like. He peaked in Cincinnati final, Joker, uh, um, Alcaraz. I don't think he hit those heights again in New York. No, he didn't. He, I agree. I agree. And uh, yeah, you just can't you can't ever know the ramifications of a match like that. I mean, you, you're not going to know going in, and there's so few like it. And it, and it was so important, given that he had beaten Djokovic in the Wimbledon final, that if he would have backed it up there. Could have done him a world of good, but instead it did Djokovic. It was such a shot in the arm, and he just was interviewed on an American program we have. I don't know whether you see sixty yep. minutes. Yeah. John Wertheim interviewed him, and it was interesting to hear him talk about that loss. And he complimented Carlos that he's as complete a player as I've seen in ages. But then he said he was pissed off that he lost Wimbledon, and then he said, and then I didn't lose on American soil. Yeah. So it shows you how. I think, you know, his attitude was so good about not, and I could tell from the comments he was making after Wimbledon that he was putting that behind him quickly, but only in the sense of, of putting it behind him in the sense, I'm not going to let it drag me down. I was close. I almost had it, but I'm going to use it to fuel me because what we also don't know, John, is suppose Djokovic won that Wimbledon final. I think he would have gone to New York much less apprehensive than he had been two years ago when Medvedev eventually beat him in the final because you could feel mm. the weight of it all going for that Grand Slam two years ago. It, every yeah. match played and constantly going down a set and dropping sets and yeah. down against Berrettini, down against Zarev. These were hard struggles. And finally it caught up to him in the final. He lost to Medvedev in straight. I think he would have been more relaxed this time around. But on the other hand, the Wimbledon loss gave him such motivation to come back in New York and his whole family came over. He had his, not only his wife, but both the kids were there and you could tell that he, how much he wanted that plus that he had not won the open since 2018. It had been such a long stretch for somebody as great as him on hard courts. It was surprising that that had happened. It took him so long to get his fourth. Yeah. So,
there were all those factors. But suppose these one women will never know how that would have played out either because the pressure would have been very different. I mean, there's also the Olympics factor in 2021. I think that's been touched upon as well, that he plays the Olympics and whether that disrupts him, especially as that's in Tokyo as well, so there's all the traveling involved. Um, you know, I, that's, a, that's a very, very good point because you know what? Not only was it going to Tokyo, but it was up, up. you know, he, he was up a set and 3-1 killing Zarev and yeah. then he lost seven, eight games in a row. Next thing you know, he's down 4-11 the third and, I think that was disappointing too because he would have played Hatchinoff in the finals and that gold medal would have been his. So yeah. I think that, that that lingered with him in a similar way to Nadal, I guess, played in Beijing in 08 and he won the Olympic gold, came to New York having won the French and Wimbledon and the gold. And you could see that he it just all caught up to him a bit in New York. He lost to Andy Murray in the semifinals of the Open when I think he might have been ready to win it. And you're right, Tokyo for Joe. That was Djokovic was asked after that Wimbledon in 21, are you going to go to the Olympics? He said it's 50-50. And I thought he surely won't go because he'll put too much stock and he knows he's going for the Grand Slam and he won't want to let anything get in the way of that. And in the end, I think you're right. I think to the, the Tokyo Olympics did, him, did really end up hurting him considerably. I mean, the Olympic year, um, we are coming to a close now, don't worry, Steve, but the Olympic year does always make things interesting because you've got, you know, arguably the fifth biggest, uh, you know, event of the year in terms of tennis. But you have those three because they're all squeezed. Or in fact, even, you know, with the French, you've got you've got the French, you've got Wimbledon, you've got the Olympics and you've got um, uh, New York or US Open. Four months, I guess, from from end of May to to beginning of September, June, July, August. So three and a half months plus a couple of one thousands in there as well. But you know that, that that it's even somebody like Novak it might catch up with. But um, it'll well, be yeah, of course, it just makes you wonder. It's going to be compounded this coming year by having the Olympics in Paris, and so they go from Roland Garros clay and the whole clay court circuit to the short grass court season playing yeah. Wimbledon back out onto the clay for something as important as the Olympics, to then have to turn around and get ready for the hard courts and play the U.S. Open. What an almost impossible task, but they're all going to have to find a way to navigate that. Regarding the Wimbledon final, one final point is um, well, a couple of things, actually. One is that, that Carlos's reaction to Roland Garros is fascinating. He said after that semi-final loss, I will learn from this. And you're thinking, how do you just make yourself learn from it? Well, he, he, he kind of didn't, especially after losing the first set in the final of Wimbledon. And then Novak loses the Wimbledon final and talks about using that as fuel and learning from yeah. that and then going right. on a tear. So it's kind of interesting. They both lose those, those matches one way in very different fashions, but then respond the way they do. Just one point about that, John. Carlos, yeah, and no question, the lesson was learned to win a match. To win a match as taxing and, and tense as that one in five sets over Djokovic and to hold up as well as he did physically, even though he did look at the end of the four to me like he was fading a bit, but he, he regathered his strength beautifully in the fifth. But at the end, in that tiebreak, and again, he, he managed to kind of pull himself together, but early in the tiebreak in Cincinnati in the final set, he did start cramping in his hand again. Thank God it didn't go to his whole body. But the hand, you could see it. At one point, he hit a very awkward forehand. I think he switched hand, racket hands to hit it. Yeah. And yeah. for the next few points, he looked 
in trouble. And then you could see it got a little better because he was able to get back to four all in that tie break. But that was a bit alarming that the cramping returned in the, at the end of that Cincinnati, but not nearly as severe as Paris. So they still have to address that. There's something going on there. I don't know if it's more fluids or what's necessary, but there is an issue. I was just thinking to myself about this Wimbledon final, uh, five sets, the first one since 2019. Uh, 2019 had so many narratives around it as well. And we had one guy playing beautifully largely and one guy just sort of fighting his way through it. And Novak touched upon that in that 60-minute interview, for example. Uh, and then the previous five set I think we had would have been 2014, uh, Novak against Roger. Um, so sort of you've, you've written a book on on the greatest matches of all time. I, I, I as, mu as fond as I am of this Wimbledon final, I don't think it quite touches the greatness of some of those finals. But um, you've seen a lot of Wimbledon finals. What kind of does top that Wimbledon? Yeah, final? no, I agree with you. I agree with you. This is not Nadal Federer 08, the epic yeah. ending on the edge of darkness, nine, seven and the fifth. The, 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 se the sequencing of the sets, the four and four for Nadal, the six and six for Roger, nine, seven and the fifth back to Rafa, just an extraordinary standard. And nor does it, nor does it reach the level of the 2019 Novak Roger final that went to th the one and only Wimbledon final in history that will go to 13, 12 in the fifth because they waited yeah. until play the tiebreak. Yeah. So I, I think your assessment is good. I actually put it more along the lines of the 2014 final, the Roger and Novak, the, their five setter, which was a very good match that had a few dips. Novak was unable to close it out from two sets to one and up a serving for the match in the fourth. And uh, I put it more there. But so it's a classic and not quite an epic is the way I would put it. So I actually see it in quite a similar fashion to the way you do. I don't, I, I, as much as, as I said, as fond as I am, uh, I think if you were to write an update to your to your book and, and put a couple of extra matches in there, I, I, I don't think this would quite make it, but it might be on a, on a long yeah, list. I, I thank you for saying that because one of my old friends, a, a fellow I've known my whole life, who's a couple of years older than me, who's quite a good, astute tennis observer, left me a phone message after Wimbledon. He says, well, you've got your next match for the book. Okay. And, and when I spoke to him on the phone, I said, no, I don't think it quite makes it as great as it was. It does not quite make it when you measure it up against the epics that we've just talked about. On that note, Steve, I think it's a perfect uh, way to end this um, episode on matches of the year, 2023, uh, Novak Djokovic against Carlos Alcaraz. Alcaraz sealing his first Wimbledon title and second Grand Slam, but Arguably, Novak came to have the last laugh, certainly as far as 2023 is concerned. Big thanks for you to join us today, Steve. Thank you, John. I enjoyed it. Thanks very much. And everybody else, you know the drill. If you enjoyed this video, make sure you hit that like button. Don't forget to subscribe 
and click that notification bell so you don't miss out on all things tennis. Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.